Hello and welcome to the Riding Unicorns podcast. This is the podcast all about growth startups. I'm James Pringle. I'm a technology entrepreneur, investor and VC at Portfolio Ventures. My co-host is Hector Mason. Hector is a partner at B2B Investor Episode 1 Ventures. This podcast is all about uncovering what it takes to build a unicorn business. We speak to some of the best founders and investors, many from unicorn companies, and ask them about their journey, operational insight, tips, lessons, stories, and anything that can help uncover what it takes to build a high-growth business. This episode was recorded with Paul Forster, co-founder of Indeed.com, which he exited in 2012 at our first in-person live event hosted at the Kia Oval Cricket Ground in Vauxhall. The event was exactly two years on from our first ever podcast with Sir Martin Sorrell in October 2020. This live event was attended by guests and friends of the show and sponsored by Crowdcube, the crowdfunding website, Seed, who provide in-house talent services, and Portfolio Ventures, the UK's leading EIS fund for angel investors. We expect to host more live events in the future as it was a great success and we hope you enjoy the episode. I'm James Pringle. Today's a big deal for Riding Unicorns. It's two years exactly to the day that we released our first ever episode with Sir Martin Sorrell. Uh, we've now released over 100 episodes officially across four seasons with some amazing guests. And we hope that we've developed something that is interesting and useful and entertaining to anyone working in the venture space. Uh, season one was a lot of just learning and hustling and trying to make things work. And um, I was lucky enough to interview Hector and some other great people. And big thank you to all those people that came on season one because back then we had nothing very limited branding, but every person that agreed to come on the show meant a huge deal. So thank you for that. And then season two, Hector joined as co-host. We went from season two to season three and now season four, all with amazing guests. And season four has almost finished. And today we record the final episode live with Paul Forster. Paul exited Indeed.com in 2012, and Paul has since invested a lot and added so much to the UK tech scene, so we're really looking forward to our conversation. Season 5 has already started to be recorded, and I expect we'll be doing this for quite a long time, so thank you very much for your continued support. Liking and commenting always helps, and we want to build a community around the content, so by being here, you are all part of that. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Crowdcube, Seed, and Portfolio Ventures for supporting us and making today possible. Crowdcube is the world's largest equity crowdfunding platform, connecting entrepreneurs with their communities. More and more founders are harnessing the power of crowdfunding to supercharge their growth by activating their most loyal customers and fans to become true brand ambassadors. And some of the team are here, so if you get a chance to speak to them about crowdfunding, please do. Seed is a trusted embedded talent partner to startups and scale-ups, including the likes of Klarna, Trustpilot, Onfido, and Primer. They provide seasoned in-house talent acquisition professionals dedicated to your company on a flexible basis. And again, the team are here, so please do get a chance to speak to them. Finally, Portfolio Ventures will be raising our third EIS fund in April, so grab one of the wills if you want to chat about that. Hi, Paul. Welcome, and thank you so much for being part of this. It really means a lot for you to take the time to come and have a chat with us today and uh, be the first live guest on the podcast. Maybe we could start with you introducing yourself and touching briefly on the Indeed story, and then we can come back to it and go into it in a bit more detail further into the conversation. Yeah, it's a real privilege and uh, honor to be here, so thank you for for the live podcast. So just to take you back to where I came from, I'm originally from this country. I went to school here, university here, then I went to Southern Africa, I spent 
two years in Botswana and then three years in Johannesburg after that. A lot of people think I'm South African because I've got a slight twang that I picked up when I'm down. My wife's actually from South Africa. I went to INSEAD uh, Business School, I did an MBA there, and that was actually where I met the person who became a co-founder of Indeed, Ronnie Kahan. I went to the US after INSEAD, spent three years working for International Finance Corporation, private sector arm of the World Bank, and it was there that kind of the seeds of working in the recruitment industry started. We were hiring financial analysts and going through stacks of paper resumes, and it was the early days of the web. This was 97, 98. There were job sites that had already emerged, but there was no finance-dedicated job site. So we created a job site for financial professionals, Ronnie and I, and built that business to a profitable business. It was through the dot-com crash, so we bootstrapped it, didn't get any venture funding, sold it in 2003. So that kind of gave us, gave us the domain expertise to start Indeed, which we started in 2004. And that was a much better model. It was a disruptive model. It was applying the basically the Google model to uh, classifieds, and we were the first to do that. And that became a big business. Fantastic. And, and it's always good to explore the sort of drive for, for starting these sorts of businesses. And I wonder what drove you to recruitment tech, whether it was something you felt passionate about. Did you enjoy placing people into jobs that hopefully they enjoy? Or was it that you just saw that there was a huge opportunity there? Yeah, it was really the opportunity. I don't think I originally had a passion for recruitment. Uh, it was more um, the business opportunity. It was very obvious in the early days of the web that the classified industry would migrate online very rapidly. And this is the, was the backbone of the newspaper industry revenue model. That's, of course, the reason for the newspapers seeing such a decline this has all gone online and this was kind of obvious to see we weren't the first to see this I think online career center which became monster they they kind of were the leaders early on but fortunately we were able to come up with a more powerful model obviously applying the google model to classifieds and uh, both in terms of putting the job seeker first and giving them a comprehensive search experience but also with the revenue model it was a pay-per-click advertising model for recruitment advertisers yeah, and, and so given that, how, how important do you think it? Because usually or often we speak to founders who feel very strongly about the problem that they're solving, that you know, maybe it's got some mission that aligns with their sort of life mission and what they, what they care about. But how, how important do you think it is to, for a founder to align philosophically with what they're doing? It definitely helps. I think I mean, I'm, I'm a believer in the free market and capitalism and the fact that most really great business opportunities are also great for, for users, for end users, for customers, for consumers. And I mean, I think there are some, some exceptions. So I have some, some red lines. I don't like to invest in sort of high interest consumer credit businesses, the Wongas of this world. I'm not particularly interested in investing in um, gambling businesses. So there's certain areas that I don't invest in, but I think most businesses, if they are successful, they do have positive impact. But if you've got a, a mission, a purpose that you can communicate to employees, to potential employees, then it definitely helps to scale your business if you can believe in that mission or believe in that purpose and be able to communicate it well. Yeah, and I think I'm right in saying that you raised one round with Indeed, which was from USV. What was it like 
doing that round? Yeah, um, Union Square Ventures are, f- are fantastic. I uh, still work with them, actually. I'm an LP in some of their funds, but it was actually Brad Burnham, who's Fred's partner, who was on our board, and he was the lead from that firm. We were the Union Square's second investment, and we raised in 2005 five million dollars which was a series a now now it'd be called a seed round um and that uh, took us to profitability quite quickly we were rather fortunate it wasn't just union square we had new york times was an investor and uh, allen and company was the third investor we didn't have any angels so we had fantastic group of investors and we were lucky to some extent to be able to for that to get us to profitability we always um believed we could do it in one round but we generated a huge amount of traffic and users and that we were able to monetize that quite early with AdSense. So we got up to half a million dollars a month in revenue just from AdSense relatively quickly. I actually came across a chart of Indeed's traffic growth in the first six months the other day and we got, I realized we got to four million job searches a month within six months. So that was uh, nice to, to look back on that. Yeah, I mean, that's extraordinary growth. I think it's, I wonder whether there's been a, a sort of mindset change amongst founders who nowadays, if you raise venture, I think you'd often consider yourself on the sort of venture bandwagon and you'd probably think the assumption is just to go on and keep on raising rounds of funding. Do you think they're actually, maybe founders should focus more on reaching profitability sooner? I mean, not, they're not always in the fortunate position where they can. But do you think maybe we've lost some focus on reaching reaching profitability earlier? Uh, yeah, I think that's definitely true. Certainly last year, maybe this year less so. Uh, obviously, the environment's very, very different, much harder, much more challenging to raise capital at good valuations now. I mean, I think a good approach is to have your current funding round last until you can get to kind of break even, and then you've got a lot of optionality. That's quite a, a reasonable approach to take. But yeah, generally speaking... In the last few years, capital has been abundant and there hasn't been as much discipline as, as maybe there ought to be. And, but now we're seeing a reset and companies and founders thinking much more along those lines. So high growth, quick path to profitability. Was there any moment where it almost failed? No, I don't think... <laughs> That's what we're all here for. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I, I can't say there was a time where we thought it would fail. I, th- I mean, there definitely were challenging times. I mean, the one that comes to mind, which is quite amusing looking back on, is uh, we, uh, Walt Mossberg at the time was the consumer technology correspondent of the Wall Street Journal. And we were lucky enough to have him showcase Indeed and live demo it on CNN. And unfortunately, we had a traffic spike that our servers couldn't handle. And the whole thing, the, the site, website went, kind of went down during the live demo on CNN. But fortunately, Walt was uh, very charitable and he blamed CNN's internet connection uh, <laughs> on air. So that, that was pretty kind of him to do that. But um, I mean, I think the 2008 financial crisis, that was also a really tough time. We had to reset our revenue projections from I think more than 100% growth to 30% growth. So that was a tough time. But uh, I think we were always very aware of the power of the model and the fact that you know this search model wasn't going to fail uh, as long as we executed well that I think we did. I don't think we ever believed that it would at that time get to be as big as it's become. I mean it's you said a European exit that's a US company and now worldwide 
you know, now revenues are kind of 7 billion and EBITDA is about 3 billion. So it's about 11,000 employees. I don't think we ever imagined it would get to that scale. But at the same time, I don't think we ever thought it would fail. I didn't actually realise quite the scale it was at. That's, that's extraordinary. Um, so, um, so, so a lot of this was, um, was a little while ago, and you've been in business and you've been investing for a long time, and especially with your angel investing now, which you're very active angel in many fantastic startups. I wonder if you notice any differences with how businesses are built today versus how they were built and you know, best practice for business, building a business 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, I think there are a few things that... The availability of relatively cheap microservices makes it much easier to start a business and cheaper to start a business now than it used to be. I guess the flip side is you don't have the barriers to entry that we had before, so you get more competition, so that's a drawback. A more recent change is a distributed and hybrid working arrangements post-pandemic. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out because businesses now that are big and using these kind of distributed or hybrid working arrangements were not big when they scaled. So very few companies have actually scaled using these kinds of working practices. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out and to see which models end up being uh, the most successful in terms of where employees are located and how they work together. But of course, you've got tools now that make it much easier to to work in in a distributed manner. So that's a Another thing that's different, I think a third thing would be, I think founders today are more sophisticated and knowledgeable today than they were 15, 20 years ago. I think, you know, in Europe, in the tech ecosystem, 20 years ago, people hardly knew what uh, stock options uh, were. But now it's amazing how the networks of information and information sharing and the culture of Silicon Valley is sort of spread around the world in all, you know, every tech ecosystem. And so relatively inexperienced young founders can have a, a huge amount of knowledge, which is, which is great to see. Yeah. And I wanted to ask about this personal side of being known as Paul from Indeed. I mean, obviously you sold the business a decade ago. So it, it, are you still proud to sort of see the branding and how involved are you still? And do, is there an element of I wish I was still in control of it all and running it all. Yeah, well, it's selling a, a business. It's kind of no-win situation, right? Because if if it does badly, you, you feel awful, right? Because your legacy is not being preserved and the, the beautiful thing you created is, it doesn't, isn't thriving. But then if it does too well, you have seller's remorse. <laughs> so, uh, so you can't really win. But no, on balance, yeah, it's, it's really nice that something you created has gone on to, to do really, really well. So, so, so it's a positive. Do you feel any seller's remorse? <laughs> can't, I can't comment on that. I, and I think, no, it's, it's tough. It's re- I mean, actually, that is a relevant question, like the timing of an exit. But obviously, emotionally, it's tough. It's tough to transition, especially if you've... To make a successful business, you've got to be extremely focused and so it's hard to keep a life balance. I think insofar as you can keep your life balanced with um, outside interests, friends, family and sort of a plan for the future post-exit, you can transition better. But in practice, it's hard to do because you've got to be so focused on, on the business. What can a CEO do to make the transition easy for employees of the business? I think the most successful acquisitions normally entail kind of leaving the company alone so if you look at 
LinkedIn, Microsoft has been very, very successful in allowing that business to grow and flourish post-acquisition. And I think Recruit, the company that acquired Indeed, was also uh, very smart about allowing the company to continue independently and not to, to change too much. And a lot of the management team that are running it now are the same people when I was there 10 years ago. I think it's harder for companies where the company that's being acquired is, is kind of a direct threat to the buyer's core business. So I think it, it'll be more challenging for Adobe to absorb Figma, perhaps, than for Microsoft to, to take over LinkedIn, as an example. But as a practical matter, I think one thing that is helpful for employees specifically is to create structures that compensate them similarly after acquisition compared with before. If you have stock options, those can disappear after an acquisition. Uh, I think one thing we did successfully is indeed we created kind of synthetic stock options which were basically bonuses linked to KPIs like revenue and make sure that people continue to be to have a stake in the business beyond the acquisition. Great advice. And so we are going to bring it to the to the group in a second so please prepare some questions so you now do some angel investing what is a red flag for you when investing that maybe wasn't when you started out angel investing well i think the first thing mistake that is easy to make is to project so that you you look at an opportunity you think you know if i was doing that i'd absolutely kill it you know (laughs) and um but of course you're not doing that so you have to remember that it's you know it's about evaluating the team um, but the, the, there's a, the old chestnut, you know, is it the team or is it the opportunity? I think it has to be both. And evaluating the opportunities is, is kind of hard as an angel. I think, you know, the best VCs are really good at looking at markets, competitive landscapes, figuring out who the players are. And they have teams of analysts doing this kind of thing. I think as an angel, that's a bit more challenging. One of the mistakes I think that is easy to make is to be overconfident in your own domain. So my worst investments have been, as an angel, have been in recruitment, online recruitment. Um, and so it's easy to, to make that mistake. I think that, um, yeah, trying to figure out markets is, uh, is kind of important. I think another mistake that is easy to make is to kind of go native with your businesses. So you, you get close to the founders and you and then when it comes to a follow-on round you say yeah i'll do the follow-on round and you kind of forget the power law the fact that only a very small percentage of your investments are going to create good returns and doubling down on the wrong investments is is a huge mistake and again you know the best vcs are very kind of aware of this but as an angel that that's a learning curve yeah, and I'm always interested to hear people's motivations for angel investing because, I mean, I think obviously you can get a you can get a great return, you can get great returns, but I think often there's there's something else driving it. And as someone who probably could never work again, why do you get out of bed and invest in startup companies every day? Well, I like to get I like to think I'm going to get a financial return, but of course it's much more than that. I you know I love working with with founders. And uh, just the energy and the creativity and the variety of, of working with early stage businesses is really, really rewarding, as well as hopefully having some impact and maybe getting some money back eventually as well. I'm sure lots of the guests here in the room have been doing angel investing. I know we have Crowdcube here, which is great. That enables lots, lots more people to begin angel investing. 
How important do you think it is for early stage founders to have experienced operators, experienced entrepreneurs as investors in their companies? And have you seen examples where that's played out really successfully and perhaps the flip side where you think they could have benefited from operators? Yeah, I think that it's less important where you've got a lot of domain expertise in the founding team. So with Indeed, we didn't have any angel investors We were not spring chickens. I was 40 years old when I started Indeed, and Ronnie was a similar age, and we'd spent five years with a a related business. I think that where there's much more value added is where you need expertise from elsewhere. Maybe you're you're early in your career. I think that um, there are a lot more operator angels today out there, so there were less around when we started indeed i think that they can add a huge amount of value and i really like the approach of some founders where you where they're curating effectively curating their list of um angel investors so only bringing on ones where there's obvious um value added yeah absolutely it's one of those circular things where once some success is built up in an area it can breed more so we're gonna try some q a you don't have microphones so best thing to do is raise a hand and ask me the question and I'll ask it. What's the craziest or funniest request you've had from a founder? So, you know, I had a conversation the other day with a founder. I I put a lot of money into this business and he said, look, I really want you to help me with with my deck here because I'm doing an investor presentation. So we spent like an hour on the phone on on a Zoom call going through the deck and I gave him detailed slide-by-slide feedback. And I said, look, I'm almost out of time. I've got another meeting. I've got to go. And he said, oh, so I've got two more two more points. Firstly, I'm not going to be CEO anymore. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm switching roles with my other co-founder. And by the way, we're out of money. So we just, we, we to, payroll is tomorrow. So we need you to, uh, to kind of wire some money and um, say... Would you ever start another business and would it be with the same co-founder? Well, I've already started two businesses with the same co-founder. One of the problems with exiting and having a successful exit is you get a lot of distractions. Like you have these assets to invest and you start doing angel investing and getting involved in a lot of different businesses. And it's, I think to be successful as a founder, you've got to be extremely focused. So that's one of the challenges I think is, is I don't know if I would have the focus to be as good as, you know, founders who don't uh, aren't at that stage so uh, I don't know is the question but never say never but uh, nothing you know I've really enjoy I really enjoy just and I keep meeting founders who are much smarter than me and more focused and with more energy and whenever you think okay I could do this again you meet people who are kind of better at it than you so it's great to be part of it as an investor. What was the most impactful thing that investors did for you and what's the most impactful thing you can do as an investor? In terms of, I think, you know, what I can do or what investors can do, I, mean, I think it, it's different in every case. It's not, there isn't one thing. Every every company has different needs. You know, I help companies with their pitch decks. I do dry runs with companies. I make introductions to VCs. I help with strategy or I help with difficult, you know, HR situation. I mean, it, it, it's really, really diverse. And I think you just have to be very flexible and responsive and I don't think it's one thing I think it's many many things and maybe it's the same the other way around I don't think it's just one thing that that where I've received help from investors I think it just many uh, many many different things but I think tapping into networks is if, if there was a thing, single thing I would point to it's perhaps 
tapping into networks that you aren't already part of as a founder? Like riding unicorns. Uh, well, Paul, thank you so much. As hopefully everyone in this room knows, we like to end our episodes with our dinner party guest game. So we'll ask the question to you. If you were to have dinner with any three people in history, who would they be? So I've begun to do more health tech investing. So my dinner party is going to be with eminent people in, in life sciences, one dead and two alive. And so I'm going to have to resurrect Charles Darwin as my first uh, dinner party guest. And James Watson of um, Double Helix fame is the second one. And the third, Jennifer Doudna, also a pr Nobel Prize winner, I guess James Watson was too, and uh, of uh, you know, gene editing fame. I thought about this dinner party because I've been reading Walter Isaacson's uh, biography of Jennifer Doudna. And so we're going to have dinner at the Eagle Pub in Cambridge because that's where Crick and Watson sort of knocked heads together to figure out the structure of DNA. And you can actually today get a pint of DNA ale. Uh, so we would have that to go along with the dinner. And um, it would be, you know, we'll be... Darwin will be regaling us with his tales of life on the Beagle and going through the Galapagos. And it'll be really interesting to listen to Jennifer and James explaining the structure of DNA to Charles Darwin, who will no doubt be uh, sort of disbelieving. And that'll be, it'll be really interesting to uh, participate in that dinner party. Amazing. You've actually put a lot of thought into that, which... <laughs> Well, and, and, and that's three originals. I think and that's three and originals. it's three points for yeah. three original guests, which is amazing. Uh, well, on behalf of all of us, Paul, thank you so much. It's been really great, and we really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Thank you very much. That's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. To stay up to date with the latest episodes, please follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We also have a newsletter called Reading Unicorns, which is another great way to get every episode direct to your inbox. Please tell your friends about it and engage with us on social media. And we'll see you on the next episode.